If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in verse 21 and following in Luke chapter 2. You know, I'm uh, continuing now a, a series that I began in 2018, and uh, every Christmas uh, we get a little bit further along, and we're looking at the different witnesses to the Savior. Um, and I told the church back in 2018, you know, we're only going to cover two or three of these this year and a few the following year, and I said that's called job security. You know, you have to wait until the end before anything happens there, but... Um, but when you think about the Christmas story, um, you don't think about anything that Jesus said. Because Jesus was an infant. He didn't say anything at those early years of his life. In fact, he didn't do any miracles. Later he did. When Jesus uh, began his ministry, when he served uh, people some 30 years later, um, Jesus did quite a few miracles he blessed people with uh, some incredible teaching, but at the time of his birth and shortly thereafter, he didn't speak, he didn't perform any miracles. In fact, everything that we know about Jesus comes from other people, not from him himself. And so if you think about all the different witnesses that there were to the Savior, uh, just starting chronologically, the very first one we come across is Zechariah, uh, Zechariah in uh, Luke chapter 1, this is John the Baptist's dad, and uh, he was visited by an angel. And then after that, you had Mary herself. She was visited by an angel, and then uh, her betrothed, Joseph. Likewise, he was visited by an angel. And then at some point, uh, Mary goes to visit her relative, her near relative, Elizabeth, who is Zachariah's wife, John the Baptist's mother. Uh, who she would become John the Baptist's mother. Both of the ladies were with child at the time. And Elizabeth pronounced a blessing upon Mary. And so she was a witness to the Savior as well in this entire Christmas story as we think about it. And then finally, Mary a second time becomes a witness to the Savior because she responds to Elizabeth's blessing. And uh, she pronounces this incredibly beautiful uh, prophecy of uh, praise to the Lord. And all five of those, Zechariah, Mary the first time, Joseph, Elizabeth, and then Mary the second time, all five of those stories occurred prior to Jesus' actual birth. He hadn't even arrived yet, but she was with child. And then after Jesus is born, the very next witness to the Savior was the, uh, or were the shepherds. And the shepherds, again, were, like some of the others, visited by an angel, really a, a heavenly host of angels, singing praise to God, lifting up praise to this baby, this child that was born. And then we get to this guy by the name of Simeon. Now, we don't think about Simeon so much in the Christmas story, but he played a very important role, and Simeon is our subject today. Simeon's uh, claim to fame, if you were, was that he finally saw the Messiah at the temple. He knew, because the Spirit of God was upon him, that this infant, out of all of the people, all of the, the babies that might have come into the temple area, that this one was the Messiah. And so we're going to talk about the, the uh, circumstances that led to Jesus, at just a number of days old, being taken into the temple complex. You see, 
Back in that day, and even today with many Orthodox Jews, when a firstborn male is born, uh, there were three very important ceremonies that took place. The very first ceremony was the circumcision of that male on the eighth day after his birth. Now, circumcision is very important in, in Judaism because it separated Jewish males. It distinguished them from non-Jewish males. It indicates, among a number of things, but it indicates that that Jewish male is an heir to Abraham's promises, that he is a descendant of Abraham. It indicates separation from the world and separation to God. And when we talk about separation, the biblical word for that is holiness. Uh, that's what the word holy really means. A lot of people think it means purity, and there's, a, there's an aspect to that. But the word holy means distinct. It means separate. It means other. And so uh, Jewish males are distinguished in that way. And on that day, on the eighth day after a Jewish male's birth, that is when that baby will officially receive its name. And, of course, in Jewish uh, uh, culture, the name indicates something about the character. Well, the name that Jesus received was obviously Jesus. And he received that name because the angel uh, told Joseph and Mary that that would be his name. And so in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, here's what we read. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he named him Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. The name Jesus is the Hebrew word Yeshua, and it's if we were to translate it directly from Hebrew to English, it would be Joshua. That's how we would pronounce it. Uh, the name Jesus means Yahweh, the Lord. It means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And so this little Jewish boy, circumcised on the eighth day and given the name Yahweh is salvation, he will be the one to save people from their sins. Now, the circumcision of Jesus is very important because the circumcision of Jesus is a reminder to us of his humanity. You see, there's an ancient heresy uh, that began uh, in the first or second century A.D. that says that because Jesus is God, there's no way that he was actually a human. The heresy says that, that the, the spiritual cannot be physical. Why? Because physical things are evil. If something is physical, it's automatically bad. And there's no way that God could become something that's bad, could become physical. And so the heresy goes like this, that when, when Jesus was on the earth, he was just a spirit. He was just a ghost. He only appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. But that's not true. That's not what Scripture says. In fact, any teaching that denies the humanity of Jesus Christ is a heresy. And I want to I explain this very carefully to you because I don't want anybody here believing in a Jesus of their own imagination. You don't want to miss eternity with God because you believed in the Jesus of your own imagination. 
the Jesus of Scripture was human. Now, I know everybody loves to sing Christmas carols. I love to sing Christmas carols. We had some carolers come over to our house uh, this past week, and uh, and it was was an incredible time. Uh, But I want to tell you, there's a couple of Christmas carols you don't want to get your theology from. I mean, if your view of Jesus being an infant includes the idea that he never cried, that he spoke King James English perfectly, and that his glowing face lit up the manger as he practically levitated above the manger, um, you believe in a heretical Jesus. I'm sorry. That is not the Jesus that came and died on the cross. You see, the real Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, was cut with a knife on the eighth day after his birth, and he bled, and he was forever changed physically. No crying he makes, not on day eight. I'm fairly certain he cried. I bet he screamed. Why? He was human. Let me rephrase that. He is human. Jesus is human. This human, this Jesus, was our Savior. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? What's the the point? Why does it matter? Here's why it matters. A Jesus that is not human cannot save you. Why? Because human sin, your sin, requires a human death. Our sin requires the punishment. If it is to be paid for, the penalty must be a human death. The Bible is very clear. The blood of bulls and goats cannot pay the penalty for a human sin. In fact, I would add to that, the blood of a spirit cannot pay the penalty for human sin. Why? Well, spirits don't have blood, but humans do. The only sacrifice that can pay for your sins is a human sacrifice. And so this is what Jesus is. He is actually human. Fully God and fully man. That is who Jesus is. Anything that takes away either his deity or his humanity is heresy. It is a false teaching. And it will not do well for you in eternity if you believe a false teaching about Jesus. There was a second ceremony that took place, not only the circumcision of the firstborn male, but the firstborn male in Jewish culture, in Jewish tradition, in fact, in Scripture, this is a requirement, the firstborn male has to have the price of redemption be paid for him. Now, what in the world is this about? Well, you remember the story of the Exodus, right? Okay, and so uh, there's, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and God sends a series of plagues, and, and Pharaoh's heart keeps getting harder and harder and harder. He's not going to give in until finally it has to be broken by the tenth and final plague. The tenth and final plague was what? The death of the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt. I mean, not just every living e- Egyptian, 
but every cow, the firstborn of every frog, the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, there was one exception. The exception was that believing Jews would be passed over. Their house would be passed over on that day of terrible death. And so, for believing Jews, they were spared the death of their firstborn son. Well, as a way to commemorate that incredible miracle, God wanted all Jewish firstborn sons to thereafter serve him in the tabernacle. This was God's desire, but there was a problem. What was the problem? Israel decided to worship a golden calf instead of God. That's not a good move. And, uh, but that's what they decided to do. And so the firstborn sons of all of Israel lost their status. They lost the capacity of being able to serve God in the tabernacle, with one exception. The tribe of Levi, they did not participate in the sin of worshiping the golden calf. And so God had the tribe of Levi replace all of the status of the firstborn sons of all of the rest of Israel as workers in the temple. And so all of the descendants of Levi would be workers in the tabernacle first, then later the temple. And then one of Levi's sons was a guy by the name of Aaron. And so his sons in particular became the priests who worked in the tabernacle. So you have all the workers in the tabernacle. That is... Uh, Levi's sons, but this one subset, Aaron's sons, they become the priests. So what about all the rest of the firstborn of all the other 11 tribes? What did we do with them? Well, when a firstborn of any of the other 11 tribes is born, the father was obligated to go to a priest and redeem or purchase his son from the priest. Why? Because initially, God wanted that firstborn son to serve in the tabernacle. But now, he can't. So the father has to redeem that son from the priest. And so he had to pay the priest. And this was a ceremony that was called the redemption of the son. And the redemption of the son didn't begin until a a child was at least 30 days old, maybe afterwards. Uh, but after that, an incredible party is held. Family and friends gather together, and they have, they have bread, and they have meat, and they have wine. It's an incredible party. Blessings are recited. And then the father gives the priest five silver coins, five shekels of silver that look like the front and the back of the coin on the screen. Now, if a boy reaches adulthood, and by the way, boys... Adulthood was 13. If a boy reached adulthood at age 13 in that culture, and for some reason his father had not redeemed him, we're talking about a firstborn son, his father had not redeemed him from the priest, then he would be responsible for his own purchase, for his own redemption. And you might wonder, why in the world would that ever happen? I mean, what kind of good, faithful Jewish family would not redeem their firstborn son. Well, here's why. Because five silver shekels amounted to five months of pay for the average worker. 
This was a large sum of money. To give you a comparison, in 2019, the average salary of a U.S. worker was $31,000. Five-month salary, about $13,000. And I can tell you one thing. If you make $31,000, you just might not have thirteen grand laying around the house. You know, It was a big sum of money, but that was what was required. It costs some serious cash to redeem your firstborn son. And so that is part of what went on in one of the ceremonies. The third ritual was this. The birth of a male required that the mother had to be purified. The mother had to be purified. And, and you want, well, why? Why did she have to be purified? Well, because she was unclean spiritually. And you might think, well, that's not fair. What's, what's all that about? Unclean spiritually. What'd she do wrong? She didn't do anything wrong. You know, she, she, she gave birth to a baby. That's a good thing, right? And, and especially, you give birth to the Son of God. I mean, you give birth, you're married, and you give birth to the Messiah. You can't get anything more good than that, right? So why in the world is she unclean? Well, I want you to understand, sin and, and for certain can make you unclean. But sometimes, even without sinning, you're in a spiritual environment that makes you unclean. For example, back in that day, uh, you would have uh, people that would have to touch the dead. Someone dies in their home. You don't want to leave the body there. You've got to bury it, right? So people would come in and touch the dead. They would become ceremonially unclean for a time, and then they would have to go through a cleansing, so then, then afterwards they could come back and worship God in the te- temple or the tabernacle or, or the synagogue. And so uh, sometimes you don't do anything wrong, but you become unclean. This world is full of uncleanliness, spiritually. And you know, on this idea, there are certain spaces. We're talking about spiritual spaces. We're talking about geographical places that are supposed to be spiritual that are supposed to be sacred, that are supposed to be holy spaces. For example, if God interacted with somebody at a certain place, that place would become holy. You remember God interacting with Moses at the burning bush? And then uh, what, what happened? Moses, he turns aside, he sees this bush, it's not burning up. He walks up to check it out, see what's going on. And what did God say through the burning bush? Moses, do what? Take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. Why? Why take off your sandals? Because something's holy. Something in that space is now holy. What is it? It's the ground. That space, that geographical location has become holy The dirt itself has become holy. There's nothing wrong with God's dirt. There's something wrong with Moses. He's a sinner. And so Moses is told, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And then at the time of Jesus' birth, there was a very sacred space. It was called the temple. The temple was a sacred space because God's presence was there at the temple. And by the way... There's no longer a temple in Jerusalem. You, as a believer, are the temple of God. 
You see, God the Holy Spirit dwells within each one of us who believe in Christ. Your body is a sacred space. Your body is a space that has a spiritual property, a spiritual quality to it. And if you are a believer in Christ, then your body is the temple of God. And not only does 1 Corinthians tell us that that is true individually of you as a believer, but that same book tells us it is true of all of us collectively, that collectively we, the people of God, the church, are the temple of God. And so when we gather together, For the purpose of worshiping God and exercising the keys of God's kingdom, we collectively become a sacred space. I want to show you this diagram that can help uh, you identify and understand uh, what is going on when Scripture talks about things being holy or common or clean or unclean. According to the Bible, at any given time, a spiritual space falls within one of two categories. It is either holy or it is common. Holy means that it is dedicated to the use of God. It is dedicated for God's purposes. Otherwise, if something is not dedicated for God's purposes, it is common. It's just dedicated for regular purposes. It's earthy. It's base. And within that sphere of being common, it's either clean or unclean. And so when something is holy as unto the Lord, it is set apart for him. But common things might be clean or might be unclean. And so you can have something that is holy and you can profane it. And that no longer becomes a holy thing, but a common thing. In fact, that holy thing can become so profane, it can become what we might call polluted, so as to become unclean. But an unclean thing, let's say your heart, an unclean thing, if it is cleansed, it can be be considered to be clean. And then if that clean thing is set apart to the Lord, is dedicated for the Lord's service. It is no longer something that is for common use, but it is now holy. By the way, there are a lot of people today who take what is holy and they profane it and they pollute it. The worship of our Lord together is to be a holy And so the activities that we do when we come together to worship the Lord, the songs that we sing, the, the ministry of the Word, the prayers, the ordinances, they must be heartfelt and they must be done according to God's instructions. Another example, our sexuality is to be a holy thing. But if we profane it, if we pollute it, we do so to our own shame. That's why Scripture tells us in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, verse 8, 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And the Lord says repeatedly throughout His Word, Be holy as I am holy. And so this is the dynamic that is going on there. And by giving birth to this male child, a Jewish woman at the time was in a, an environment that made her spiritually unclean. And so we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so what happened on the timeline was this, that after the birth of her son, Mary was uh, ceremonially unclean for seven days. And at the end of seven days, she was uh, given a, a ritual purification bath. And then, even after that, for the next 33 days, she was not allowed to touch anything holy. She was not allowed to go into God's temple and to worship God. She could not go into the synagogue, her local synagogue, and worship God. Uh, I think this also gave a mother, for example, some time to rest and relax because she's got something very important at home to tend to now, a new baby. And so after the 40 days, the 7 days and the 33 days were complete, she would then go to the temple and present an offering. And in the offering, the offering could either be a lamb that she gave to the priest, or if she was poor, she and her husband would bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And this is what Joseph and Mary did, because at the time, they were poor. And you might say, well, what about all that gold and frankincense and myrrh? Didn't happen until later. Right now, they didn't have the money. And so they brought two young pigeons or two turtle doves. And so this is the scene as Mary and Joseph and the baby go into the temple. And they come across this guy. Apparently, they never knew him before. His name was Simeon. And we read in the next verse, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout and looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. I love this description. What a simple description. It should be that at the end of each of our lives, as someone uh, gives a eulogy of our life, that they would be able to say this Little statement of us, the man was righteous and devout. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It doesn't say that he was a priest or some kind of religious worker. Uh, it, apparently he was, quote-unquote, just a righteous man. You don't have to be a vocational ministry worker to be a righteous man. Sometimes it would help not to be. But he was just a righteous man, just a man who loved the Lord. He was devout, true in his faith. It says he was looking forward to Israel's consolation. What's that mean, Israel's consolation? To console someone means you help them through a hard time. You lift them up when they're down. 
And Israel had certainly been down. Israel was not free. Israel was under the control of the Romans at the time. They'd gone through incredible suffering, much of the suffering due to their own disobedience to God. But here came Israel's consolation. Relief from suffering. It refers to the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Scripture tells us now since Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit has come upon all believers, that he dwells not only on us, but he dwells within us. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that implies? You know, sometimes I think as, as Christians, we think, oh, wouldn't it have been wonderful to live back then and, and walk with Jesus and listen to Jesus and see Jesus do miracles and, and hear his teaching? Wouldn't it have been wonderful? We missed out, people say, on, on being with Jesus. And I want you to understand that you're not missing out. The Spirit of God is within you. Every single day, you can walk with Jesus. Every single day. The Spirit of God is with you in the same degree of reality as Jesus Christ was with his disciples. Every single day. You have a member of the Godhead with you at all times through the Spirit of God. And this man, Simeon, he had the Holy Spirit upon him. And, and the Holy Spirit upon him was going to enable him to say what he's about to say. In verse 26, it says, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, that which we've already talked about, Simeon took him, took Jesus, up in his arms, and he praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you have promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Think about that. The salvation that God offers, it is for all people. It is for Jews, for Jesus himself was a Jew. And it is for the rest of us. Gentiles. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Simeon says that Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Why do we need revelation, those of us who aren't Jewish? The reason we need revelation what, what does that mean, need revelation? It means we need God to reveal himself to us. That's what that means. The reason we non-Jews need God to reveal himself to us is because 
God did not give us the law. He gave it to Israel. God did not give us the promises. He gave it to Israel. And so we're going to be in complete darkness unless God reveals himself to us. And that's what God has done in Jesus. That is what God has done in this little baby. This little baby that would grow to be a man. And he would live a life without sin. And he would die on a cross to pay for our sins. And he would rise from the grave to give us eternal life. This Jesus is a light of the revelation of God to us. This has been revealed through Jesus. And not only that, Jesus is the glory to your people, Israel. You see, Israel already had God's revelation. They already had God's law, but they were waiting. They were waiting for the glory that God had promised. God had promised repeatedly in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, that He would bring glory to Israel, and they were waiting for the glory. There it is, in this infant that came into the temple with His parents. Jesus is the long-awaited glory of Israel. Well, I don't know what you would have done if you had walked into church and some stranger grabbed your baby and started raising him to the sky and making this prophecy. But here's what Joseph and Mary did in verse 33. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, both of them, Joseph and Mary. He blessed both of them And then he turned to Mary alone. And he left Joseph out of this. He turned to Mary alone. And he told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Why did he turn away from Joseph and speak only to Mary? He certainly didn't know that Joseph would die before all of this would take place when Jesus was a man. But the Spirit of God was upon Simeon. And the Spirit of God led him to speak only to Mary, the mother of Christ. And he said to Mary those words. He said that Jesus, this child, is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. What does that mean? Simply means this. For those that are humble and believing, Jesus brings salvation. For those that are proud and unbelieving, Jesus brings judgment. You will encounter Jesus one day. You will stand before Jesus one day. The Bible tells us that all of us that are believing will stand before the Bama seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and all of our worthlessness, all the stuff we messed up on, it's going to be burnt away like wood, hay, and stubble. And all that's going to remain are the things that are true. And so all of the worthlessness will be burnt away 
and we will be saved. At the same time, the Bible says that the unbelieving will stand before the great white throne judgment. And they will be shown, when the books are open, that their works earned them the judgment that they so deserve. Jesus brings salvation and he brings judgment. And you're either in the one group or you're in the other. Simeon said he will be a sign that will be opposed. Jesus would be opposed and rejected by many of the very people that he came to save. And he said, Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul. Mary would experience incredible sorrow because she was still alive and her son, her firstborn son, would be arrested and rejected and crucified. He said that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Listen to me. Your heart's going to be revealed. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. You just cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You either recognize him as the Lord over all who died on a cross for your sins and rose from the grave, or you don't. It is one or the other. The question that I have for you is, where do you stand on this question of this infant, the baby Jesus?